Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musical storytellers. Presented by Spitfire Audio. It seems like it's been forever. I'm Kenny Holmes. Robert Kraft, are you with me? I am so with you, and it has been forever, and we are back, and we're bad, and we are season four in the house. And it's so great to see you. Um, which is a new addition to the show. We'll talk about that in just a bit. Uh, this is Spitfire. Wow. This is, is for the podcast <laughs> presented by Spitfire you know Audio. What? I'm so excited about Spitfire coming back with us yeah. too. Um, and we're going to get to them in just a bit. Uh, but first I want to introduce uh, Matt Schrader and composer Hello. Carol joining us as always. Hey guys. Um, we have a big guest for you on our season premiere episode that we are thrilled about. There's a huge story to talk about that we've been wanting to get down into the details with, and that is the Snyder Cut. Our guest is Tom Holkenborg, a.k.a. Junkie XL, and he has a lot going on. Uh, Godzilla vs. Kong is also out there uh, leading the theatrical numbers, um, You know, one of the only films that's really been in theaters uh, to register those kind of numbers, and it's nice to see that that's happening. Um, but a, a ton to talk about with uh, Tom about the, the Snyder Cut and doing this film during the pandemic, a four-hour score, mm-hmm. a director's cut, really a super unique story for Hollywood. I don't think anything like this has ever happened before where the same film was released by a different director and a different composer. Definitely with, not at that scale. No, and with the same actors and shots and everything. And the power so of a lot social to talk media about. rocking into the cybersphere to, to, new to world, say, man. Yep. bring us Junkie XL, Zack Snyder, and the original cut, and it worked. Thank you. That's the yep. end of our show. And uh, <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everybody. Um, before we get to all of that, we do want to thank our sponsor, as I mentioned, Spitfire Audio, who stuck with us even through the pandemic. They're back for season four. We can't thank all those folks enough over in uh, the UK who uh, we've been trading emails with at different hours of the night to get this going. So thanks to all of them. And of course, um, they help all of you aspiring composers, composers, musicians. Uh, They make the orchestral sample libraries for film composers. Whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional, Spitfire has so many sounds you will love. It's kind of an amazing day to even talk about Spitfire because this morning, as a Spitfire fan and subscriber, in my inbox was a free Spitfire Labs yeah, auto harp, I saw that. a really yeah. cool auto harp and uh, it's just one of the benefits because they release a new library in their free lab series pretty much every month i think and you can get an entire orchestra which some of us are lucky enough to now have which is their bbc symphony orchestra recorded in london in abbey road uh it's just an amazing product Yeah, and speaking of Abbey Road, at the end of this episode, you're going to hear a demo piece from their Abbey Road 1 Orchestral Foundations Package. It's a 90-piece orchestra recorded in the same place as Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Avengers Endgame, and so many more right there in the big room. Um, So we're going to play you a cue from that at the end of the show, so stick around Can I ask you? It's really cool. Man, these samples are sounding so good nowadays. It's unbelievable how good they are, and it reminds me that I, I need to ask my co-host, Kenny, one question since we're now visual and YouTube. 
Are you getting a little extra dough for product placement for the Abbey Road sign behind you? Because did I miss a bet here? Was there like an opportunity for me to <laughs> cash in on some? Yeah, you know, I'm getting some studio time out there for putting the book in my background oh, here. Shoot, it's I, uh, Robert. You can fix this right now if you have a can of spray oh, paint. I need it, and you can just go ahead to that back wall behind I need you. It. And, uh, no, those those the you'll book get the same the, pay as Kenny's getting. Well, <laughs> the book and the mug are actually from when we shot there uh, for. I score, wonder if it'd be a conflict with the Aston Martin sponsorship I've worked out just for me. You know, Kenny, play your cards right. I might be able to get you. Put the car behind DB7, you. Seven, but you know, recording your car. They said, Robert, you and James Bond should be driving the same car. I said, you know, I've always felt that. <laughs> Kenny, where were we before I got so distracted? <laughs> well, I think our listeners were waiting on the edge of their seat to find out how much they can save by using Spitfire right products uh, at, for being fans of Score the Podcast. 25% off Such your first purchase deal. of any Spitfire audio product with the promo code cord. It's a, promo it's code SCORE2021. Seventh is the promo code, which reminds me. <laughs> compose, hey, that actually worked. Composer Carol. Yeah. Do you um, Spitfire audio prod? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Is that a Spitfire? It's an augmented seventh? Yeah. It's do a, you yeah. Spitfire in your composing, Carol? I do. I do. Um, a lot of times, actually, it's probably my go-to uh, sample library. They just have so much stuff to offer, and every one of them is just like perfection to me. And I've used others, too, but Spitfire is just somehow my go-to, so... Yeah, I'm really there glad they're sponsoring it. us. Yeah, there Perfect. you have it, and we even have from the lips of a real <laughs> composer. Real composer, and I didn't realize fully because of your camera angle that you were sitting at your piano, so you could underscore some kind of conversational moments. If I said <laughs> C major seven, oh, we're doing this. With oh a, boy, are we doing the a, chords with an A and yeah. <laughs> There it is. Name that oh, chord. Why are you doing that? Game. <laughs> Name that chord. Carol would win. That's un- what's. Oh, oh I know that tune. I think I get performance royalties. Yeah, you get like four cents. Oh, oh, so. oh, oh, four cents. <laughs> so, Kenny. All right, let's get back episode. on track. Score 2020 is the promo code. Use it. This is the longest, off. Oh. the longest read <laughs> ever to start the show. They're going to love this. <laughs> They are going to love this promo that lasted 17 minutes. Uh, score 2020, score, excuse me, score 2021 is your promo code. Save yeah. 25% off your first Spitfire product. And again, after the show today, we'll play you a clip from that Abbey Road One Orchestral Foundations package. Right That's going to be after the interview with Tom Hope. Have I said right on? Uh, Matt. I haven't seen any of you guys in person, really. I think, Matt, I've dropped a couple of things off uh, in passing, but it was more like I was the paper boy just chucking it out the window. Um, what have you been up to? Yeah, we're kind of just all avatars now uh, until we uh, until we meet up again. But, you know, the, the great thing about that is now, as of this season, we have video on Score the Podcast. So if you prefer to uh now we should still be doing everything so that our audio listeners obviously can listen along so we don't do a whole lot of wow look at this cool thing right here and you know so we'll still have to like 
reference those types of things, I guess. But um, now there's video, so people that like to watch this on YouTube can go there. Our Epic Left Media page will be posting episodes there. Uh, and you can watch the interviews with the composers. Um, what we're doing right now, this kind of intro block that we do, we'll talk about current events and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we have a new show this uh, season because we're going to so score the podcast is going to be basically an episode every two weeks. That's what we're going to do instead of the weekly format, which we've done before. The reason for this is it's been frustrating to our fans. The season ends too soon. How long have we been away? It's been eight months or something too like long. that. There's been things happening. How are we going to talk about these things that are happening? We are going to have to start a new season earlier or something like that. Well, we have a solution for that now, and that is more <gasps> score. It's a Patreon show. It's uh, fan-supported, so you do have to pay something to get access to it. That's how we are able to subscribe to all the tools we need in order to put it on and do the editing of it and all that stuff. But the great thing is it's year round. So now when something happens, big events, when the Oscars happen, you know, we, we did a, a few episodes of this already where we talked about the Oscars and who's going to win and uh, all of that kind of stuff. I think maybe someone owes someone else barbecue now as a result of this. Um, so check it out. More scores on Patreon. You'll hear an ad for that in just a second. I'll tell you in the break how you can go access that. Um, it's If you have the Patreon app, you already know exactly what to do. You just download the Patreon app, search more score. But uh, we'll We've be already about done everything. an interview we with... Four- uh- Carlos four Rafael up. Rivera, too. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, th- to kick us off, we did basically life stories of Kenny and Robert. Uh, we did a pre-Oscars show, which now is irrelevant. So no one has to go back and watch that if they don't want to. Unless you want to see the bets that people made that and they got lost. wrong and now they owe barbecue. Uh, but uh, then episode four, which just came out uh, as you're hearing this, and that is an interview because we're going to be doing original interviews on More Score with Carlos Rafael Rivera. He is the composer of The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, only the biggest Netflix series of all time, uh, who did amazing music for this thing and scoring chess. It was amazing how he, he, uh, he had to try to time these things out to chess moves and first write music to the script and then write music to the picture. And he walks us through all of this stuff. It's also really interesting that he's a Miami-based composer, which is the first one of those that we've talked to on the show and uh, was able to basically score this whole series from Miami, which is really cool. And this is the world that we're in now. We're sitting in our our, uh, different locations, able to talk with each other. And uh, it's the difference one year of pandemic makes, but it's true with composers too. So Carlos walks us through all of this stuff. Really interesting hour, a little over an hour that we spent with him. We'll be doing a lot more of that. So check out out more score. In his interview, one of the interesting things about Carlos is he's a a professor at University of Miami also. And so the way he describes things and explains reasons for, you know, decision making and he it's very it's very teaching he's he's explaining that you know not everything's going to go your way and he he has a really interesting way of telling his story um in that he's often telling it to students who are going to experience these trials and tribulations that he went through and that he's still going to go through i mean he's aware that he is on the hottest show in netflix ever but not every show that you get or not every film you get is going to be in that position. And he's very much aware of that. And it's really inspiring to hear the way he talks about his story and 
how humble and and prepared he is for you know the future ahead, which is going to be ups and downs, just like anyone else. Um, Especially so now, though, to see him in those first couple that rapid rise that's at, like he he's, was very secretive about kind of the next the next projects that he's working on and didn't want to reveal mm-hmm. too much. But like there's some big projects in the works now, mm. which is really exciting for Carlos. And uh, and so anyway, we'll be doing more score basically on the off weeks of score the podcast. Plus, we'll be doing some bonus episodes on stuff. It's going to be interviews with people that you might not ordinarily hear on score the podcast, but also some that you might. And uh, we'll be doing original stuff there, hanging out. Um, as always, your your support means the world to us, and it allows us a lot more flexibility to hop on, talk about what's going on, and uh, and give you good, high quality content that you'll only see on I, Patreon. I and can't wait to hear Carlos talk about scoring a whole series about checkers. And then I know there's one <laughs> on Parcheesi. Is that the next there? one? <laughs> and I think they're they're going to move into. Sorry, it's oh, sorry. Well, Candyland is yeah. already a movie. So, oh yeah, that's right. It, it's been a uh, a really interesting moment, hasn't it, for for all of us to be able to do this? And I think composers, strangely enough, who are so accustomed to this interaction with the director and with the producers and the studio and the orchestra. To yeah. be deprived of that for a year, I think, has been both upsetting, understandably, for a lot of composers, but it may have moved the whole field of composing into a little bit of a new reality, which is, I can do a lot of this without ever seeing you. Uh, it might be a little different recording individual players from halfway across the world on a video screen, even though we'd moved slightly towards that. But I think like all, certainly all entertainment industries and maybe many others, the reality of Zoom has certainly changed the need for this incredible expense. Well, a lot of that stuff's just getting so yep. good now, too. So you can record things locally. You know, we're, we now this season are using a new service, too, in order to do all of this stuff. So if you see any technical glitches, it's their fault and not mm-hmm. any of us. No, it's Kenny's <laughs> fault. That's right. Uh, but so far, it's been pretty impressive. And uh, this is the new technology, man. It's going to be, it's really, really cool stuff. And, uh, and awesome that you can score a series like The Queen's Gambit from your your home studio in Miami. That's yep. awesome. And that you can do it just with a shirt on because you only see the half up, <laughs> just like yeah. an yeah. episode of Robert, Score. you make way too many hints that you're not wearing A-block. pants you know what, over the last couple I don't, seasons. It's called I'm, Donald Ducking. And uh, it's just, you know, one of those secrets. <laughs> one of those secrets I don't reveal, though I guess if you're listening to More Score and subscribing to the Patreon subscription, we may, in fact, and you'll know the secrets. Kenny, don't we have a kind of episode coming up where people can write in their questions? I've seen some questions, and I thought maybe what we do is have a more score where yours truly and a couple others on the screen answer some really interesting questions from composers and. Mu- yeah, we could do a long form Q and A thing where we have plans to do stuff like that. I saw that. some good questions come into the inbox, so. And we used to do the mailbox. Yeah. We will. We'll still Good. be we doing will. it. 
We have a packed uh, show intro today, so we won't do it this week. But we we already have some questions. We in still got to talk Oscars now. W- this is airing a little bit after the yeah. Oscars uh, aired, so we don't want to spend too much time on old news, essentially. But uh, it was a kind of rough start for the Oscars. Well, the tel- the telecast that they had was the lowest rated ever by mm-hmm. a long shot. So not many people are watching. It is a year in in which thing it's a real weird year, as we all know. The projects coming out are different than what you would normally see. Uh, you're not hearing the same marketing and buzz for things. Um, and you know, there's there's an argument to be made that they're holding some of the best projects. For next year, when hopefully everyone's back, you know, flocking to theaters. But um, what were your impressions of uh, of the Oscars this year? Are you asking our audience or our our? <laughs> I can't um, hear them, but yeah. I uh, mm, mm, yeah, interesting. I thought <laughs> good one, first of Jim. All, I was yeah. really close <laughs> on my ballot. I am so impressed that I psyched out a couple categories, though the one that everyone seemed to miss that I talked to was of course the one that completely messed up the telecast, which is the big finale of Chadwick Boseman winning. We've, I mean, we've all read it to death, but Anthony Hopkins winning not only was fabulous for Sir Anthony Hopkins and, and also, you know, Chadwick Boseman did a great job and that was an amazing movie. And of course he's passed, but I read a really wonderful piece about how the producers of this year's Oscar telecast particularly steven soderberg made a bet that they could have a big emotional ending and they bet the house that this is the way it's going to go and like many things with murphy's law attached oops it just didn't work but i think in the in the category if there is anyone i was just going to say if there's anybody thinking that the oscars if they know the answers or if it's rigged in some way that just answered that because that blew up was, in their face for I, sure they I actually thought the they same. just cut to quest love and he's like well all right everybody have a good night and it was like whoa that was really anticlimactic really but i actually in our category which is the music category i felt pretty good about the uh way that i predicted it though i feel miserable for our great friend diane who has every year come so close and been of course diane's getting it this year i mean her Diane Warren, who's been yeah. on the show uh, last season or two seasons ago, I think we had her on the two show. Two seasons, and ago, of course, yeah. the song yeah. from Tw- Judas twelve was times nominated. Great, and her is super cool, and could not be at this moment having a hotter career moment. But Diane was ready for her first Oscar win, and didn't happen. Of course, Trent Atticus and John Batiste taking it for Soul—that was just a yeah. lock. I don't think. I don't yeah. think anybody really had much hope uh, for it going. I heard an interview with James Newton Howard where even he seemed kind of resigned that he was going to be attending <laughs> as a nominee and leaving as a nominee. But, uh, you know, I love award shows. I particularly love award shows when they go south. So I got a lot of pleasure out of this, seeing it be <laughs> just kind of a dog's breakfast a couple times with things that didn't work and really we're gonna have glenn close twerking i mean you know i guess so 
all good, but <laughs> we love show business. I think it was really missing the numbers. The musical numbers is what keeps the, the energy of the show. I liked the vibe. I liked the layout. Um, but those breaks with the musical numbers that kind of get you, it's, it's entertainment. It's not just talking. Um, I will say, though, I really liked the way that they gave little backstories to some of the craft categories. No pun. I know you like to make that craft yes. pun. Not you, the craft uh, <laughs> workers. But the, the way they would say, you know, this costume designer interned under this other costume designer, and now they're up against each other. Like, it gives a little bit yeah. of a backstory because also just a lot of those people that... They, they knew that yeah. one audience member of the 10 million that watch actually liked that. And we just found out who it was. It was you. So, <laughs> well, Matt. But Matt pointed out that they were missing like the visuals to to marry that up yeah. to it. So show us, you know, a little bit of the work that they did because it was a lot of just talking and showing people. Yeah, it's but, tricky when you have like, oh, here's the cinematographer of such and such, and it's just he's just kind of like <laughs> drinking his drink, and they're yeah. just still talking about him, and he's like, "What do I do? I'm just there's uh, things hi. they can take from yeah. this." to next year and and yeah. also bring back what they've always the cocktail done. party so. vibe the old it's very old school hollywood thing i love that yeah. actually i actually thought that was a cool thing to bring back instead of like the grand ballroom big kind of you know the corporatized uh broadcast kind of thing i like it being a little smaller but yeah they got some other things to work out for sure anything else in our a block that we want to hammer home before we get the junkie xl which we're using our production has, lingo uh, our has, a block oh, did you want to deep tease that I now robert or a did you want to is a should we float term that? that our audience should know because they're experiencing it right now the a block <laughs> is it means you're a a plus that's content exactly right uh, Robert, I have a Shoot. I had a question for you that I have been saving for this. So we have Tom Holkenborg yes, yes. coming on uh, in just a bit, who is you know obviously the composer of uh, the Snyder yep. Cut, and in this situation, um, he was fired, so to speak. I mean, there were talks that he wasn't really wanting to stay on anyway, but ultimately they made the decision, and then he comes back. But I'm I'm wondering from your experience uh, as an executive. When someone's fired, how does that work with like the pay structure? Because they're not paid hourly. So do they get some sort of a percentage of how much they worked on it? And how, how much does that affect the music budget if you know this far along you're replacing with somebody else? Because that, that's got to be a big problem for that you. Is a in that is a great seat. question. It really is. Uh, first of all, and you know the great quote attributed to Jerry Goldsmith, but everyone knows that quote which is you're not a real hollywood composer until you've been fired off a picture so that's mm -hmm. nobody escapes that um for whatever reason sometimes you're an incredible composer and just directors having a bad day and can't figure it out or the studio doesn't know what the movie is and they want to go a different direction because maybe the music will solve it but to answer your question i think the answer is twofold one is you get paid what the deal is because somebody made a deal for their client, right? An agent made a deal for their client to score your picture. That means that client turned down <clears throat> other pictures. That means that your client has reserved those four months to work on it. That means your client is counting on that income. 
And so the agent will come back to the studio and say, you promised my composer $500,000 for the score of the XYZ movie. And the fact that the director decided to go in a different direction is not my problem. You have to pay my composer $500,000. That's one approach, and I've seen that. The studio will often come back with, and obviously this is all kind of done in a very, you hope, cordial fashion. They'll say, you know, we understand your point of view, but all your composer did was turn in a couple weeks' worth of demos. He or she didn't work for four months. Maybe we can settle this at, and the studio will say, $50,000. And the agent will say, banging the phone on the desk, I'm sorry, did you say 50 or did you mean 250 And somewhere in there, usually what happens is they settle. Because unless it's all the way near the end, I mean, I've been on scores that have been thrown out virtually done then it's not a no-brainer the composer gets paid full freight and then you have to get your music budget reassessed and find another five hundred thousand dollars from the studio and it's always believe me it's none of it is pretty but depending on where in the sequence the composers let go you try and settle out the composer where everybody feels taken care of the composer loves you still Plus, the composer doesn't want to burn any bridges because maybe if he's working for 20th Century Fox, he wants to be considered for other things Correct. down the road. So it's in his best interest to try to be equitable there, too. Does the new composer coming in, are they able to demand a little bit more? Because not only are they doing the same job, you know, scoring this film, but they're also doing it with less time, more pressure. Are they able to negotiate that up a little bit or do they generally get kind of the same that the other composer? Once again, the answer to these questions is pretty consistent. It's a negotiation. If a new composer coming in Mm. has just been asked to score a major film, he's a young composer without a lot of credits. And this is the biggest shot he's ever had. He will say, I will do this for the price of lunch. I am so excited. And I've been in that situation where you're out of time, you're out of money, and there's a cool young composer who is someone that you want to take a shot with. And you say, this is all we have. And the answer is good. And as you (laughs) can imagine, if you go to one of the, titans of film composing to say we need you to bail us out and we've got four weeks to go that's a really good place you can imagine for an agent to be in to say great here's the price assuming the studio will say but that's twice what he usually gets and the well you're giving him a fraction of the amount of time so so like all things in hollywood people think there's kind of a rule book boy All of these are negotiations and conversations and whatever way you can get it done and however desperate you are. Desperation does not smell good is one of my favorite expressions. The Justice League thing is so interesting because it came out, you know, our our, uh, first episode last season was Danny Elfman. Um, and he came in to basically replace Tom, who, who is, uh, the interview you'll see in a few minutes. And 
it's amazing because now, granted, they changed some things in the Snyder Cut, you know, that are quite a bit different now. Um, but a lot of these sequences, you can see, you can compare side by side and see how two different composers scored something. There's these great examples of scores in history that have been thrown out and replaced with someone else's. I think of like Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, Alan Silvestri, I think, wrote up the first score for that and they didn't like it. And then basically, you know, Hans and his team was called in with, I don't know, three hours to go or something, some it, tiny amount Chinatown. of time. And, yeah. and obviously that score is a super catchy tune um, in, in a lot of ways. So they really, that's very famous for a reason, but um, never have we really been able to see how a previous score is applied to, was applied to the film. And in this case, you can see that in justice league. And it's interesting to see the way Danny Elfman approaches something and the way Tom mm. Hulkenberg uh, approaches something. Cause there are different minds at work. I don't want to get into like who did what better. Cause it's there's like a master there's class. subjectivity there, but it is something that is fascinating to see the the musical storytelling tools, you know, those gears turning, and the music is doing things in both of those versions. It's really cool. It's kind of yeah, and and when you pit them side by side, uh, along with the music, the editing decisions, the coloring, and the feeling you get from watching the combinations of these things, this is something that I th- I believe will be used in curriculums at film schools because you've never really had something at this level that like Matt said has actually been released that feels you can put yeah you can put side by side and be like all right you want to feel this way look how this pop song was used uh like when Aquaman's walking out of that bar two different songs are used in the regular version of Justice League and and the Snyder Cut and you feel completely different about Aquaman in those shots with the way that the scene's colored and everything. So the combinations of all of those um, for a film at that level, it's really, really interesting. And, and hopefully it can be used in something because, like we said, th- th- we haven't really seen this happen before. Robert, were you surprised that that movie came out I've like never, it did after the fact? I've never seen that. And it's, uh, it's just like all things, it's kind of this alchemy of HBO Max needs content. They have this thing, you know, these things have to line up at so many levels. You have to have an executive somewhere that says, hey, wait a minute. There's this energy to re-release it with the right cut by the director. And there was all the haters on the current cut. And so I've never seen it. But like most things, we're in a new era where things are just surprising. The really fun part about the comparison, the side-by-side is it should be done. Somebody should just take four scenes. It's been done. There's there's oh, a bunch good. of YouTube ones already. I think they wasted great. no time. I actually yeah. would save And I'll bet our friend Sulan uh in uh Kalamazoo at Kalamazoo College. This is the kind of thing that she oh, could that'd really, be really dive interesting into. interesting to hear the emotional take of each interpretation. I would save sometimes temp versions of scenes next to the real one and show those in classes, particularly temp versions of songs where you'd have a big hit song and then you'd find out you couldn't afford it so you had to go find a, an unknown song and how that had a different response. But um, God bless Zack Snyder and Tom Holkenborg for pulling it out of the fire and making an incredible statement and an incredible movie and it'll be interesting to talk to Tom and have him tell us about it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before we get to that interview, Carol, you do have a new album out, uh, and we wanted to ask you about yeah. this because it came out during our off season. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your album. I'm so uh, nervous. A, a duet. Yeah, right? it's a piano and vocal duet. Um, this is my very first album, and I've never thought of doing this. And it's just, yeah, it's just a little something that. Um, so I'll tell you more about it. It's a piano vocal duet. Um, I co-released this with my friend. Her name is Papita Salim, and she's the singer in this album. And she's a friend who I've been making music with since middle school, uh, where we grew up together in Jakarta, Indonesia. And yeah, we just wanted to do something fun. I wanted to share this with the world. Uh, We just hope this can bring some comfort to everyone's days and reminding people to smile. The album is called Smile. So yeah. And Very I've cool. listened to it. Do you want to give us a little? Oh, yeah, live. Oh, go. I, so she has her piano guys. there. Do you want to give us a little something? I don't know if we can hear it. Well, spot, are we? What were you going to say, Robert? Before I just said I've listened to it, and it is a smile. It's so beautiful. I recommend oh, going, going to Spotify. Carol Cuzwanto yeah, smile. Just, Carol it's beautiful. Smile. Um, here, I'll play a little something. It's the play piano interlude. Isn't that from what they say on on? One of those talk shows or play us in. Okay, here we go. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's very casual that composer Carol can just say. Well, her medleys are amazing whenever we have a new guest and Carol does a medley of something. So I'm super excited about Isn't this. Isn't that beautiful? It's just incredible. Go check that out, guys. Composer Carol, Carol Cuzwanto on Spotify. The album is called We're Smile. Um, I think it's time. Should we... Take a break, and we will Carol's come back with out. Tom Holcombord. We're going to smiling, and we're going to come back. There it is, with Junkie XL, <laughs> a.k.a. Tom Holkenborg. Season four is in the house. Let's go. Hey, it's Matt Schrader here. If you like Score the Podcast, you're going to want to check out More Score, our new Patreon show for Score superfans. What's Patreon? Well, it's a website and an app that lets fans crowdfund the type of extra content you want. And now, More Score has it all on video. You can listen or watch right on the Patreon app. More Score already has the life stories of people you know, like Kenny and Robert from Score the Podcast, as well as bonus features, hangouts, and yes, original interviews, like Carlos Rafael Rivera from The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Did you know he had to throw out his score and start fresh? More Score gives you insight into the film score world, and it's a beautiful addition to those of you who just can't wait for another episode of Score the Podcast. Best of all, More Score is year-round. No more off-season. Go to patreon.com slash morescore or download the Patreon app and search More Score. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. My name is Emil Mosseri. You're listening to Score, the podcast. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the season premiere of Score the Podcast. Super excited. You know our guest. Uh, he joined us in the first season of this show, and he's coming off a massive year. Um, he's got Zack Snyder's Justice League on HBO Max, which was a total huge success and hit, and uh, Godzilla vs. Kong on there also as well, which is, I think, still the number one movie at the box office. Tom Holkenborg is joining the show today. Tom, how you doing, man? It's okay. I'm trying to sit up straight so to relieve my back a little bit. Other than that, it's fantastic. It is a it is a fantastic start of the year. So uh, it actually was a great year for me last year. Uh, besides the, the all the pandemic issues, but work wise, it's been really blessing and really great. Well, you set a very high bar for the show because we're starting with the number one movie in the marketplace and the number one composer in the marketplace. So every other episode, ah, they're going to have to live up to where you are. (laughs) However, I feel unfortunate. Unfortunately, I feel remiss that your back has been giving you issues. And as I was suggesting earlier, when mine hurts i often think it's pressure you know literally um and i was thinking well tom is under so much pressure with so much work but i didn't realize till you told me that you once fell off a stage and that's the genesis of it can you tell us when and where you fell off a stage were you in the middle of a punk mash pit I, you know, this is like back in the day when I was way younger and I was way, way angrier and uh, way more, uh, even more energetic than that I am now. Um, uh, I was touring um, with Junkie XL and uh, so the early days, so somewhere in the 96, 97 in Switzerland. And it's like one of those type stages, you know, like the size of Coachella, the main stage, like really big stage, wow. very high. And... Um, where I was standing on the stage, like a, a, a good six, seven feet behind me, there was like a crawling hole um, with a metal stairs to go down and check things like amplifiers and generators for power. And they didn't shield it off with like a, a gate or something. And I was jumping and standing backwards and then woof, I just fell through and just landed on my back. Terrible. And oh, so, so since since then... Uh, my lower back is like a, a reoccurring issue. Uh, usually, it's no problem as long as I keep doing my yoga exercises, my stretching exercises. And uh, <clears throat> so what you mentioned, Robert, uh, being under stress and being under pressure uh, is a contributing factor whether you have issues with your back or not. But it's a, it's a very complicated string of events that can lead to a reoccurring episode of my back problems. It could be as simple as um, lack of sleep, um, the food, mm. the eating habits haven't been uh, so great, um, um, potentially pressure, uh, making a wrong move, uh, slipping on the exercises, not maintaining them. You know, it's, it's, it's a complicated uh, yeah. 
But it's like, you know, um, it's like having a toothache, you, you know. Uh, when you go through a whole year or two years without toothache, you're not enjoying every day that you don't have <laughs> toothache. You, you know, you start, you, you get reminded once you get toothache. And then after you come back from the dentist, you're like, oh, am I glad that this toothache is gone? But then two days later, it's back to normal, right? So you forget how you got that toothache in the first place. So it's very similar. We saw the drum you built for uh, Godzilla versus King Kong, and hopefully you're not lifting that thing up. Can you tell us, um, you, if you haven't seen his uh, social media post of this drum, this is a, a six-foot drum. You, you're always building, and especially you're, you're a, a <laughs> percussionist at heart anyway, um, but wh where do these ideas come from to just build a drum? There's got to be drums already existing. Yeah, but who doesn't want to have a drum that's six feet in diameter, right? I that mean, doesn't everybody fit wants in one. their own house. Yeah. I love that part no, of I know. the videos. Yeah. It, it would look so cute behind Carol next to the acoustic guitar, <laughs> a six-foot drum. It, looks, it would look so yeah. great. So, uh, you're right. Um, but um, no, the idea was that uh, I use percussion a lot in my, in, in, in my movies, and uh, I work together with this incredible instrument builder uh, who is from the Pacific Islands, but he lives in uh, San Diego. And uh, Christian Frebeek is his name. Hmm. And so he built these incredible original instruments. And uh, at a certain point, I wanted to complete my assortium of instruments with like a really big, massive bass drum that would sound incredibly great for the movies that I'm working on. And so we decided to build one from the, from the ground up. It took like five, six months that thing got delivered at my studio, and it was like, shit, where do I put this thing? Oh, <laughs> that's <laughs> my question. Well, because we I, know you, you just did a huge garage sale and sold a bunch of your stuff, so you probably made a little room, right? All right. Well, a garage sale is a slight understatement. I, I actually <laughs> yeah. sold everything, you know? Uh, not some of my stuff. I sold everything. And um, Really? Mm-hmm. Ah. Electronics as well as, as acoustic instruments? Everything. Or Oh, you should have seen that there was pages and pages of this incredible gear. What what inspired that? Uh, to be exact, seventeen hundred items were were, wow. were for sale. Um, so, what inspired it is that um, um, I have been collecting instruments since nineteen seventy nine, and and so uh, I used to work in a, in a music store. People would trade in all these instruments and uh for people out there that have worked in retail it's like when you trade something in basically what you're paying the customer is so little because you need to store that instrument you need to repair it you need to fix it you need to make you need to make advertising for it you need to make space in your shop to sell it so in those days if people arrived with like a memory moog uh, now worth mm. uh, $30,000 or so, um, we would say 50 bucks, <laughs> if that, you know? <laughs> and uh, and so they would, they would take it. They were happy to get rid of their instruments that were so horribly out of fashion in 1981, 82, 83. So they dumped all these analog synths basically in our lap for nothing. And um, I decided to buy them all. It made my... Uh, my boss very happy because you know uh, I just paid him the money that we just uh, paid the customer for as a trade-in, 
And he didn't have to deal with any of it. He didn't have to repair it, you know, no space in the shop. And so that's where the collecting started. And it wasn't done with like some brilliant vision in the future that one day these things are going to become very valuable. It wasn't done as, oh, the sound is going to be very hip in 20 years from now. (laughs) I just loved these instruments. And I thought they were beautiful, beautifully built, beautifully designed. And I started buying them. And I also had the space. I was playing in the bands back in the day, and we had our own studio in a farm. So we had all the space in the world to store these instruments and use them. And um, so now we're all the way up to 2002, the year before I, I moved to Los Angeles. And I had this massive space in Amsterdam with all these instruments and drum kits and outboard gear, <laughs> telephone comp- compressors, Fairchild compressors. I mean, you name it. I had the whole lot. Um And then I moved to LA, I moved with like a very simple setup. And as I got more rooted here and my career was getting more solid, I started shipping out more and more of these instruments. And so eventually I had everything back here in LA that I used to have in uh, in the Netherlands. And did you have a farmhouse here to store it in? No, uh, uh, no, 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 no. Um, but you know, my my studio space was relatively um, relatively big, and I have a separate studio house uh, where that is just studio, and everything was in those two buildings. And um, at a certain point, it started to weigh on me. You know uh, that I was walking around. And I was thinking, oh, I should really make music with that beautiful box today. Oh, I should really do this. But I couldn't because I was working on something else. And then the moments that I did want to use it, it was not working, you know, because (laughs) these are vintage instruments. So the frustration and the guilt was growing over time. And at the same time, I was in the process of like getting rid of things in my life that I really don't need. Um, so it was the perfect storm and I decided to sell everything and uh, the decision was taken two years ago I took a year of prepping uh, and in uh, inventory like all these instruments ship them all to reverb in Chicago and then sell them all um, it was a process of two years and not one day that I regret it not oh one you day. just wow. answered my next question which is any buyers or sellers remorse you know like shh I wish I had that one analog synth for this sound. Well, and I, I will say, I've talked to at least two of our listeners who bought something of yours. So oh, you yeah. made a lot of people happy um, just you know, wanting to get something that their favorite composer used. I think that's pretty cool. Um, and a lot of this stuff is, like you said, it's collectors. It's, it's stuff that you can't get somewhere else, right? I mean, these are hard-to-find pieces, and... They also happen to be in, you know, held by one of the best composers in the and world. So it's so a pretty cool fashionable thing for someone right to buy now it. to have the yeah. real one. Yeah, and it's like you know, in all honesty, I mean, I loved having uh, all this vintage gear, but it will always be vintage gear, and so you're not going to reinvent the wheel with something that was invented in 1968. You know, if you want to reinvent the wheel and make new sounds and make something original and creative, I wanted to gear more towards um, equipment and instruments that are really of the 21st century and not of uh, 1960, 70, and 1980, where uh, technical progress was limited. And I do love the sounds, but it's all—it's always going to be that you know. You can, um, you know, you can buy an original amp 
that was used by Jimi Hendrix on the same Big Muff pedal and the same Fender guitar, and you can use the settings that Jimi Hendrix did. Uh, it's never going to sound like The Edge from U2. It's going to sound like Jimi Hendrix. So if you want to go to a new way of creating sounds, you would have to use different type of equipment. I kind of love the fact that your solution to making new way of sounds is to get someone to build the most ancient instrument on the planet, a drum. <laughs> you know, it's sort of, you think that the end of that yeah. sentence would be, so I had like new technology that's never been used and NASA builds it for Mars, but I got, no, like, I'm I need build, some skin. Yeah. I'm going to build something I bang on, which is really phenomenal. I do want to know though, just for my own musical curiosity, do you feel that there's software that can mimic the sound of those analog synths sufficiently that to the untutored ear, well, you can throw out the hardware because right now you can dial it up in some kind of patch. And save space too, right? Is, I mean, even, even, to the, even to the tutored ear, sometimes it's very hard to tell them apart. I mean, like we've done a lot of uh, A-B a, comparison in the studio. There's actually one studio time that I released um, where I compare um, classic synths with their software counterparts. And, and I dare the listener, close your eyes and tell me A and B, which is the hardware Jupiter 8 and which is the Arturia plugin. 50% of the people just got it wrong every time. And so, and these are trained ears. You know, these are people that are synth experts. Now, is there a difference between a plugin and a, and a hardware synth or any hardware? Absolutely, because the, the romance and the physical experience of mm. sitting behind a piece of history that is 50 years old, of which there are only 3,000 made, and the synth that I had was owned by Michael Cimbello, who wrote the hit Flashdance for... I'm a maniac, um, exactly. maniac on the floor. He wrote, he wrote that song on the synth that I had. And so, so add that to the magic to it. Is, so that makes it a magical experience. But is it better than a plugin? By no means. And so, um, obviously, there is going to be a bunch of purists that will go really into... Um, to, they will take you to battle when it comes to these kind of things. And and for that matter, it's the same with uh, classical instruments as well. I mean, there are people that swear with like a certain cello builder from Italy from uh, the, the mid-1900s, whereas other people say, no, I, I, I can't stand the sound of that cello. I want a cello from this builder, you know, uh, 50 years before that because of the wood or because of this quality or that quality. Uh, everybody has a very strict performance where um, for the untutored ear, ah, cello is just a cello, right? Oh, it's so interesting. Yeah, and you could even, of course, I'm sure there's cello samples that you think, wow, that's such a beautiful instrument when it's really just some bits and bites. Tom, you mentioned studio time. I mean, you have this enormous following. This may be contributing contributing to your back issues because you're not only writing hit scores but teaching so many of us about the your career your life your instruments did you have that idea that's uh just i'm not here tell them i've i've stepped out to hang out with <laughs> junkie xl so um <laughs> was that your idea to start that did somebody approach you and say hey 
we want to go online with you and have you do a whole series of, of master class-like things? Or did you say, I want to share what I know? Uh, the history of that is that um, <clears throat> my mom is, um, was a music teacher. And so <laughs> uh, when I grew up, she was teaching uh, music classes and flute classes, simple piano, simple uh, violin to young kids. And in the night hours, she would teach uh, kids from less fortunate families and mm. not charging any money uh, for it. So that's already how I grew up. Uh, and um, <clears throat> education in Holland is for free or nearly for free. So we don't have those crazy numbers. If you want to go to Harvard or to Berkeley here, you know, you pay... Uh, you know, basically a mortgage for a house. And so um, in the mid-2000s, I was asked to set up um, a four-year music course uh, at the biggest music university in Holland, Artes. And I did that, and I was connected to that university for um, almost 10 years. And then we separated ways, so I was able to do other things, and they were able to move on. Um, and then... I was basically brainstorming with a few people, what shall we do next? And that's where the idea for Studio Time was born, is to basically uh, create tutorials for young composers, uh, aspiring composers out there. Sometimes they're very technical in nature. How do you set up this? How do you set up that? Other times it's analysis of how music is being made. Um, and other times it's really deep analysis of what film scoring is, how it works, uh, dynamics with the studio, with the producers. There's a segment that's called Ask Me Anything, and people ask all kinds of random questions, and I answer them as honest as I can. The only downside of studio time is what I would love to do, but I never get permission for it, is actually show the picture that I'm working on, but nobody mm -hmm. allows, us, allows us to do that. How has studio time changed? Because you've been doing it now for several years, and it's, it's a really high-quality production value, too. It's not just a webcam and Tom on his computer i mean this is this is some really professional looking stuff um ha have you been experimenting with different ways to show people things because there's a lot of a lot more tools available now too with the pandemic and ways to stream are you doing any live stuff uh, there, there are so many tools available right now i mean when we started um we basically uh hired a uh, a crew to uh, to film it and and to edit everything Little did we know, and it was uh, relatively expensive. Um, and we started talking to somebody that we know who said, uh, who we asked, um, what would it cost to build like a setup permanent like that in the studio? And, and, and the number was like half a million dollars or something. And it was insane. Um, and now, uh, this year, for the first time, we actually bought the whole setup ourselves. Uh, oh, and, wow. And so cool. we do it completely in-house right now. But now you can do it for under $20,000. Everything, mm. professional lights, professional cameras, uh, editing software, uh, streaming software, everything. It, it's, it's incredible. And um, so now the interesting thing is that um, not only can we do stuff live, but I can record studio times in a very dynamic fashion when there's a lot of a very good example is that when justice league came out there was one particular theme that really stood out for all these fans for this movie and which was the theme for the flash uh, which for me was a, a great piece of music but i had no idea that the fans would really be gearing towards that particular theme and it's like outplayed by any of the other tracks uh of justice league 
by a thousand times on Spotify or something. It's insane. Wow. Um, mm. I'm not talking about a thousand more plays. I'm talking about thousand times more plays. So it, <laughs> oh, it's, it's insane. Um, and so there was a question, oh, please do a studio time on that theme. And since we have that stuff ourselves right now, we could just dynamically plan in, okay, let's record one today, just about this theme. So it's really great, actually. And when That's you so say cool. it was in Justice League, which Justice League version or both? Um, well, I, I, I didn't finish the music for the first one, so we're only talking about the second one. The, the right. first movie was finished by George Whedon. Uh, the score was done by Danny Elfman. And um, yeah. so they're completely two different movies. Um, a different score, different storyline, everything different. I never saw the first one. I never saw the wow. Josh Whedon one. I, yeah, we, we kind of wanted to get into the story because, you know, obviously there's, there's some tragedy attached to it and we don't want to spend too much time on that. But the story of, of how this movie came out and then there was fan interference and a, and a uh, what do you call it? A, a, a petition, oh you mean? Petition, a petition, petition. Yeah. I don't know why I blanked. I was thinking protest, but there was a petition to rescue... Zack Snyder's version and I would love to know we've seen the stories and and it was told by Zack Snyder several times but I would love to know from your perspective how this all unfolded because I think when we had you on last this was had had just happened and we didn't really want to get into it at the time can you just take us back to that time so you, you know obviously your great friend Zack Snyder tragically lost his daughter and you were still on board with the film at that point and Joss Whedon was coming in. Can you can you tell us what happened at that point, and then kind of walk us through the evolution of of this crazy? T- this is maybe the only time in the history this has happened in Hollywood where a film has been re released with two different directors, two different composers, um, but the same shots o- almost, and the same actors and everything. Um. I, I, I don't know much about the facts on, on the very last thing that you just uh, stated. But um, nevertheless, it is a unique uh, a unique scenario. Let, at least let's agree on that. Um, yeah. So for me, um, when uh, I, I knew everything that was going on uh, back in the day, and I don't need to rehash it because Zach has been very open about that in various different interviews. So I was... Uh, right smack in the middle of that also because uh, as you mentioned Zach and I are really good friends so there was a lot of conversation at night uh, what was going on and uh, what transpired um, <clears throat> when uh, when Zach stepped away I was technically still the composer for two more days uh, and, 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 and so I met Josh uh, the next day I got a phone call from Warner Brothers hey do you want to meet Josh and I said okay. Uh, the me- the meeting was uh, unpleasant at best, and and um, and basically when I left the meeting, I knew how this was going to play out. Uh, and at the same time, I was also thinking that a, a potential decision to continue uh, to work on that film would really be based on conversations I would have with Zach, you know. Um, but hmm. it, but it, it for me. I didn't feel motivated to now embrace a completely different vision on how that movie needed to be finished. Uh, mm. So uh, so actually when Warner Brothers called me, uh, Josh wants to work with Jenny El- Danny Elfman on this, I was actually relieved. Um, mm. 
So because it's, you know, you have to understand when you have such a close relationship with a director and one is sidelined and now you have to encompass a whole new direction for a movie by a different director. While in fact, it is the original set out idea of the director that just left. It just doesn't feel good, you know? Um, so as all of this starts to unfold, you know, they, they, they do this movie, it comes out, but behind the scenes, are you starting to see the petition and the momentum growing? Because this is something that couldn't have happened 15 years ago as fast as it did, at least. Yeah, and there was, there was an interesting detail. It's like you mentioned the petition that people signed to release uh, the Zack Snyder Cut. There was a second peti- petition that was started to release the score. And so, um, and both got a ridiculous amount of uh, signatures. And so, um, at a certain point, um, I mean, Zach and I were constantly in contact about a lot of different things because, you know, for starters, we were starting on Army of the Dead and, and, you know, uh, future movies that he's starting on. And then um, he asked me in December uh, 2019, he said, what would it take? to finish justice league i said i don't know what do you think yes he's like well you know maybe there is an opportunity it's like okay let me let me think about that and so um fill me fill me in on one detail which i've either forgotten or didn't know had at that point when you say what would it take had zach been approached with this kind of if we could go back and fix this or was this just his own fantasy of hey if no i i I, I'm I'm not hundred uh, percent um, uh, informed on the details, but I think by the time it was December nineteen, uh, he and Warner Brothers HBO Max were discussing the possibility mm, of good. of getting this because this is not a decision you take overnight, right? I mean, it's uh, it, it was a massive undertaking when we stood when we started, um, and so. It, it was officially greenlit, I think, last week, April in 2020. And I started mm. summer in May. So I think those four months, five months before, were basically to put everything down on paper. What would it take to finish? Zach, what do you, want, what do you need to do to finish? Tom, what do you need to do? And then come up with the budget and just like, can we mm-hmm. make this work? And so... Um, were you guys seeing the petition though? Were you were you commenting on that like privately? Like, can you believe this? Because that was pretty unique. No, no, I, I stay away from that. I mean, like, it's it's like uh, um, it, it it was heartwarming to see, especially for Zach. You know uh, mm-hmm. that, um, and, and and that's especially what I what I felt when I heard that it was. Uh, uh, that it was greenlit, so the movie could get released in its original vision. I was like, "Hail to you, man! You know, <laughs> great, for, great for you. People will now see what you uh, originally anticipated to set out." Um, and then, for me, uh, funny enough, when I played some of these themes and pieces of music back of my original approach to this film, uh, there are a couple of things that happened. Um, a I got in a really bad mood <laughs> because I was like thrown back in that time period of turmoil and, and uh, the drama surrounding uh, Zach. And the fact that this movie was now going to get finished for me needed to be something like a celebration and not like uh, tear open old wounds. Um, 
so that's one reason why I wanted to start from scratch. The second reason is my film scoring career is relatively young. I did my first uh, movie solo in 2013. Um, and in 2016, I started on Justice League. Now we're 20, 2020, which is like, it's even more than half of my career ago, I started on Justice League. And I've worked with George Miller, I worked with Peter Jackson, I worked with James Cameron, I worked with Robert Rodriguez, I worked with Tim Miller, um, with so many amazing directors and producers. Why would I not utilize all that knowledge that I got from these wonderful people and just start over and just make the best possible score I have in me at this point? Uh, so I called Zach and I said, would you mind if I start over? And he said, by all means, go for it. And uh, so that's where my Mount Everest be began, you know, the climb, because it's, it's, it's the longest film score I ever worked on. You know, I absolutely love, I, I love this story, I must admit. And you answered, before we take our little moment, you answered every question I had, which is kind of prescient, which is how do you go back and rewrite a score? How much had you grown between the first yeah. writing and the second iteration. I had never anticipated something that you also said, which is really interesting to me, that you said the actual music brought up emotions of that time. Of course it did, it, and, but that never occurred to me. I sort of assumed when I heard you started again that it was purely your own chops were now deeper, your skill set, your musical and narrative conceptions were now more developed from these other films so you just wanted to get out there and say look what i've learned a new backhand a new forehand a new way to come to net you know whatever it is you're now like an athlete learns things it never occurred to me that emotionally the first one was tied in and i really love that though i also have to say it's the anti-lazy approach to anything most people would say you know what man i'm gonna just hey, i'm halfway of, done yeah, yeah I'm let's halfway get done. going let me just finish this up and move on to the next it's kind of remarkable you said i want to go again and that the director didn't say wait 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 i'm really attached no and and, and i think um it's important i mean like um I, I i'm not i can't speak for zach in this but i mean um uh i, I could just imagine like even if he could reshoot the whole movie from the ground up with like things that he that he that he learned in the last four or five years he would potentially sign up for that as well but i mean that would be just too much money right to to get everybody back in and just do it from scratch um but uh with music it was easier to just do that and uh, well easier for some yeah you also know but a pandemic yeah but i mean with. yeah yeah and so I, I was actually getting to that because um, uh, when I when I said uh, at the beginning of this interview that it was actually a really great year for me last year and and this year um, that is purely uh, from a work perspective perspective it was a very hard year uh, a to see the hardship that so many people around the world were going through and are still going through um, the fact that. I was completely isolated um, from my friends and family in the Netherlands. There was no 
opportunity to travel to see them you know my dad is also 83 you know he's getting older he had periods where he wasn't not so great and so not to be able to go and and spend uh, time with them and put them at risk that that was tough and that was tough for a lot of people in uh, in in the world to deal with that um and so what was great about it uh, for me is that um, f from a composer standpoint of view, living in a pandemic or without the pandemic, it doesn't really make all that much difference. You know, you, you go to the studio, in my case, usually around four or five in the morning, and you stop at a, around eight, nine o'clock at night, you have dinner, you make some phone calls and you watch a little bit of Netflix and so you go to bed. How is that any different than the year before when there was no pandemic? It, it, it's not. Um, so what was interesting, though, is that I have this um, uh, super tiny house in, uh, in Tarzana that I, I just love to live. And I have this tiny little room upstairs, which is only five by five feet or five by six feet. And I basically built a work set up there. And um, I just worked from there on my own for a whole year. And that was interesting because it was absolutely in complete isolation with no crosstalk with uh, my assistants or with anybody. And it was, um, uh, that was very interesting and it made it more intense. And at the same time, I'm sure you've heard this uh, with uh, some other composers that you talk to or you will in, in the coming episodes is that everybody had to be so darn creative this year, like how to get music recorded, how to get it mixed and how to uh, get it out. And when I mean get it out is physically, how do I upload 180 gigabytes of data within six hours so people have it in time? You know, it, it, it's, it's incredible. And, um, and that's where, where I felt so blessed uh, because I call myself a full contact composer, which means I play a lot of instruments, but I also record all my stuff. I mix all my stuff. I master all my stuff. How happy was I that I knew these skills from back in the day? Because I was able I was to do say, everything yeah. on my own here upstairs uh, without um, having to rely on the studio that mixes all my stuff and then it, it comes back and then this and that. So... Um, it was challenging to record because um, from the orchestral side of things, and I'm, I'm going to now name like a few movies in a group that I've worked on last year. Uh, one is Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, then it's the spy movie 355 for Universal that is coming out at a certain point and Justice League um, and Army of the Dead. So mm -hmm. um, I have seen recording scenarios with one violin player in his bedroom and then <laughs> and then it was oh we can record three string players max in this little studio over here with masks and with plastic shields and everything and then there was a moment oh it's going better now in london we can record 18 uh, string players in one room and then two days later sorry tom the restrictions have been back on we can't record anybody here that you have to do it at home so i have so many different types of recording and I had to mix all these recording to make sure that it constantly sounded as one film score throughout so it was so much extra work um, normally 
when a movie is done and you go into the orchestration process, recording and mixing, LA is such a well-oiled machine. And so are some of these other international cities that are focused on film music. We can do it in 10 days if we have to. Score is done, poof, army of orchestrators, guests get all the people in the room, uh, let's record it, a few different mix studios, everything, and it's done in 10, 12 days. With COVID, 18 weeks for the same work. 18 weeks. It's, it, it's And insane. then stuff's probably out of sync. You have to, because it's not all done at the same time. So you, it's not recorded in one spot. So then you have to kind of piece that puzzle all together too. It, 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 it's incredible because um, um, I, would, I would get um, like um, recordings from a violin player. I would get all the separate little takes that he did, punch in, punch out, yeah. and I get like hundreds so you have of to files. Comp everything, I, or I have to piece the whole thing together. And then uh, somebody was working with this software. Somebody's working with that software. One person records uh, him or herself oh. with one microphone. Another person has five microphones <laughs> to record. It it was insane. But it's great. really a testament to your creativity. No, that's what he's saying, and your attitude, yeah. that it was great. Because a lot of people could say, you know, I, I'm going to freak out how difficult this is. What's fun for us is the number of interviews we've done, some in person, where here you've said you're full contact composer. You realize that some of your esteemed com uh, comrades out there and colleagues who shall remain nameless aren't really clear on which the USB port is and have to call the assistant in from the other room. We've been through all this. They're brilliant composers, but kind of, I'm not, is this microphone, um, let me scratch it, you know, <laughs> yeah. is this on? Because I'm not, so to see, think that there's Tom out there who can literally soup two nuts, knock it all down. Kenny, should we, on that note, soup the nuts? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk more Justice League and uh, Army of the Dead as well. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt Schrader here. If you like Score the Podcast, you're going to want to check out More Score, our new Patreon show for Score superfans. What's Patreon? Well, it's a website and an app that lets fans crowdfund the type of extra content you want. And now More Score has it all on video. You can listen or watch right on the Patreon app. More Score already has the life stories of people you know, like Kenny and Robert from Score the Podcast, as well as bonus features, hangouts, and yes, original interviews, like Carlos Rafael Rivera from The Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Did you know he had to throw out his score and start fresh? More Score gives you insight into the film score world, and it's a beautiful addition to those of you who just can't wait for another episode of Score the Podcast. Best of all, more score is year round. No more off season. Go to patreon.com slash more score or download the Patreon app and search more score. Hi, this is Ludwig Gorenson. You're listening to score the podcast. And now let's go back to the show. Welcome back to the season premiere of score the podcast presented by Spitfire audio. We're here with Tom Holkenborg. And uh, we were just talking a little bit about Justice League. I wanted to ask you, though, because this film wasn't going to have a normal theatrical release. This was kind of one of the first direct-to-streaming service 
movies that could have been in the theater. Was there a different process for you and Zach? Um, was there a little more leeway? Were you involved as much with studio executives in putting this together since it was a director's cut and it was kind of, you know, four hours long? I mean, it was, it was kind of a different approach, it felt. But was it for you? It, it, <clears throat> this project is unique in any, in any form, you know, uh, especially in my uh, young career and probably for a while to come because it is called the Zack Snyder Cut, you know? So you can't call something a Zack Snyder Cut if the process of finishing a film is how it normally is with uh, producers and uh, influence of studios and everything. So it's uh, it was a unique process, which basically meant I was only talking to Zack and nobody else. Whereas on a, on a, on a, on a normal film... It's very normal that you have uh, meetings with uh, the music departments of the studio and they have a certain vision or opinion. Um, and filmmaking usually is teamwork. It's uh, incredible, talented producers, really smart people that are the executives at studios, the music departments, the production departments, the director and his production company, uh, the composer. Um, the visual effects artists, the, the Foley effects, the special effects, audio departments, and they all stick their heads together. And that's how a movie is being made, you know, uh, with the, the, the director being the captain of the ship. But there is a massive crew on the on the ship on the director side. Let's go over there, starboard. Then it's like <laughs> 40 people start running on the ship to make that ship move you know, right. in the slowest possible terms to the, to the right. And um, that's what filmmaking is. It's, it's teamwork. It's a, it's a complex uh, set of parameters. So if you're only talking to the director at this point and nobody else, that is pretty unique. How different was it, though, when you jumped into this second round? Because you said you started over, but was there, you, you, I think you had said that you've, you had scored half of the film, or initially the two-hour version, um, how different was it? Did he start over as well? Or did he kind of keep what he had um, in the initial beginning of it? Because it, it got longer, obviously. Well, I mean, um, uh, Zach shot like a huge amount of extra shots during the during the whole um, recording of the ori original uh, Justice League. Um, and then eventually uh, the movie could not exceed two hours. Um which turned the storytelling aspect really into like uh, a rush, you know, just like uh, to, to get all the story beats out. And um, what is interesting about the four and a half hour cut that is out right now is that it is not just a nonstop uh, senseless action uh, movie. There, there's a, a lot of space in it uh, for dialogue to... Uh, to discover the backstory of all these different characters uh and sometimes just to play out a great scene with no dialogue or no music at all just like enjoy the the visuals and uh and that's what's really great about the vision that he initially had there is some beautiful kind of i don't know if it's schadenfreude or or justice that he gets to tell the epic entire story i just wonder when it was decided that you would go again, didn't you have commitments to other films? Godzilla was 
coming at you or army of the dead how did you say i'm also going to add this to my plate and how did those other squeeze films, in a four-hour movie yeah, yeah how did those other <laughs> films react were they unhappy well, did they I, know uh, yeah, because I'm always uh, playing open cards. What 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 goes on in my life, which prevents a lot of trouble down the down the line. And um, so I can say, in all honesty, that Godzilla versus Kong was completely wrapped up before I started on Justice League. The whole movie was done and dusted uh, March nice. last year, beginning of April. Um, Army of the Dead was nearly done, uh, so I had a whole year ahead. Uh, to finish Justice League and to finish um, the 355 movie with uh, Simon Kinsberg. Uh, but that movie score is way lighter in nature and it, it's small instrumentation, uh, small percussion. It's not a big action score like uh, Justice League. So I will say, though, that the bigger the score in production also means it takes more man hours to, to finish it. It, it's it's really true, and um, so I was. Uh, um, it, it doesn't matter how talented you are. I was I was playing like the other day the the uh, what was it the first Jurassic Park with the score from John Williams, and it's like you can just hear. Uh, it's a lot of work to put all these notes on paper. You know, it's just a lot of work. And yet we can sit here and go, and it just stays and everybody turns around and goes, oh, that's Jurassic Park. I mean, it all comes down to, in so many ways, some melody that stays with us. 355 could not have had the amount of fervor online as a Justice League with fans and, hey, man, um, can you tell us a little about that? I, for one, I usually know a little about these things. Tell me about that film, whatever you can oh, share. It's, it's, it, it hasn't come out, so there's not yeah. much I can say. It, it hasn't come out yet. So it's it, like... Um, spy um, movie? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a great cast. Um, and uh, Jessica Chastain is in it. Uh, Penelope Cruz is in it. It's, it's, it's a great cast. It's a really fun movie. Oh, great. Um, but... Like that movie, there's so many movies that are still being shelved. I remember there's, we're still waiting for a James Bond. We're still waiting for uh, God knows all these big movies that have been finished by these big studios, but they're picking the right moment to, to release them. So um, for Warner Brothers to take this choice to do like this joint release, you know, in HBO Max and theater at the same time, not only is it a very brave decision, but it's also a very interesting uh, business venture, you know, to see like, hey, you know, it, it is a possibility to release something exactly on the same day yeah. on a digital medium and in the theater of which I think a lot of people believed if that was even possible, you know, uh, to do that. And uh, it's clear that it that it that it can work. So it uh, and I'm I'm not a, a brilliant business person in that uh, sense at all. Uh, that's why I work with people that are. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm very curious to see, you know, um, how this experiment is going to play out in the next five to ten years. Are we looking at a completely different model? How multimedia, as a as a conglomerate, is being is being released, and how it's going to get consumed in the future by uh, by customers, whether at home or a special theater. Um, it's very interesting to see. Well, it brings up an interesting question too. 
for I was just going to say, as a composer, does that change the way you score a big blockbuster film, knowing that it's going to be watched in more homes versus uh, at the theater? Do you do you mix things differently? Do you use different types of instruments? Does that change your approach at all? It it changes a little bit. It's like if you um, if you consider um, that the majority of the people are actually consuming um, uh, TV shows and movies or from their iPhone or from their iPad or from their laptop while laying in bed or chilling out. It, it the, the number is staggering. Um, and then there's a, a group of people that have a big TV setup at home with like a, a sort of like surround environment to, uh, to really enjoy a film. Um, and then there's people that don't do that at all and only want to go to the theater and watch a movie. Um, what I'm heading at is like as the screen gets smaller and the speakers get smaller that you listen on, it means that you can overstep your music writing and your production by quite a bit uh, to fill the gap of not experience it so big. So if you watch something in IMAX uh, and your editing style of the picture would be the same as like a music video you would watch on your phone, you would go absolutely totally dizzy. So the fact that something is an IMAX and so big, it means that you need to keep a few rules in mind because you will drive the people absolutely crazy in the theater not knowing where to focus. George Miller said to me once, he was able to edit Mad Max so insanely crazy because the center point of the action is always in the middle of the screen. You never need to move hmm. your eyes. You can just stare at the middle of the screen and then the edits can go really, really fast because you don't need to look around. Remember some of these Tony Scott movies from the 90s, uh, early 2000s? Absolutely. Where the editing style yeah. was so crazy. And at the same time, you had to focus left and right. Where's the action? Where am I supposed to focus on? And so, and that was a very interesting experiment. One movie I worked on with Harry Gregson Williams is Domino, which is absolutely crazy in that editing style. And it's, it's, you have to almost see it twice in a theatrical setting because your eyes are often in the wrong spot of the screen where something is happening there. <laughs> but the shots are edited so quick um, that you have to see them again just for that. Whereas Fury Road, just focus on the middle of the screen. I so, never thought of about. Do you think George? This is the dumbest question I could ask, but do you think George very consciously shot and framed to make sure that the center of the screen? They and they did re, they redid scenes up to ten, fifteen times to make sure that the focus was in the middle of the of the camera because he knew how he wanted That's to so edit it. I wonder if Tony Scott also, because now I'm thinking back. Harry uh, worked on Man on Fire, which we did, and that's also really jagged feel to it. And I don't know if that was Tony Scott's emotional approach or not. Well, I met Tony only once. And um, I would say he's an absolute brilliant uh, director. And, and so for me, he was like the king in the movie genre between like 40 and $70 million, which was like a forgotten uh, area of filmmaking, right? It was $150 million plus, or it was like... Um, uh, 12 you know it was like 12 you know and he, and he filled the gap in between and uh he was the king in that genre and he um he he experimented with so many 
interesting ways of telling a story, editing, um, using music. Um, um, I, I, re I remember um, uh, because Harry was his go-to guy, yeah? Harry, Harry Gregson. Always. And, um, and uh, I, I remember that he was constantly pushing Harry to go more extreme and to go more this and to go more that. He, he, was, he had a really, really strong vision. And uh, it, it's very unfortunate that he's he's not with us anymore. Yeah. But um, no, I, I I think you can conclude that whatever he did on movies was a very very uh, deliberate choice to do to do it like that. I'm sure it's like an engineer. You know, why did you record? the guitar you know that particular way was that an accident no i wanted a certain ambience i wanted a certain room sound yeah uh, it's just you've educated me and next picture i see i'm gonna look at how it's framed yeah i never thought because of it that you know way. as musicians and and film fans i'm always of course just hanging on the story i'm not thinking a lot about the directorial choices and i like now knowing that that's something that now it makes me want to go back to see Fury Road, one of my favorites, and it actually ties into something I learned from you, which is the programming of drums in Fury Road is insane and signature. <laughs> it's almost like a melody. And to think that you went and had another drum built for Godzilla, I thought, wait, wait, you have those cool, don't you have the Fury Road drums? Yeah. No, who's going to know? Why would you go? Build Are you building any drum? new instruments? Yeah, yeah. For uh, I, your upcoming films. Yeah, I'm, 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 uh, I'm constantly building new stuff or designing new stuff. Um, mm. And obviously, um, because of the pandemic, uh, we are less mobile. It also means that you cannot get together with a group of people just like that, you know, to do this or to do that. There are limitations uh, for starters. Uh, most of the studios wouldn't let you record over the last uh, year, unless it was under super strict uh, rules. Um, so it, it 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 meant that I had to be more creative and do more things do more things on my own that are within within my reach uh, to do. Um, but uh, the 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 Fury Road drums are definitely one of the better sounding uh, drum kits. Period. But e even if that is the case, it's time to move on. <laughs> you know, you are unique in that a lot of people wouldn't He's have ready for your something new. energy and ambition. Tell me, when you think about what's coming up, we're all looking at crystal balls. Do you think you'll be back in a studio in 2021 with a big band in front of you? Or do you think, just like the films that are now coming on to our home screens and out of theaters, do you think you'll be doing more at home? I think uh, the pandemic uh, has taught us, a, uh, taught us a couple of different things. Um, uh, for starters, at least in my, in my world, in my life, uh, is uh, how much... A human being needs physical contact with another human being in one room. I, I'm not necessarily meaning touching, but just like feel each other's energy, be, be in each other's energy field. Hmm. And to have 90 people sit in front of you that all put their best forward, that all bring their 30 to 35 years of uh, excruciating experience in controlling and playing their instruments, all at the same time playing your piece of music, that is 
not even necessarily the sound that comes of it, but the energy in that room to make that possible is just incredible. You don't feel that on Zoom. You don't feel that uh, on Skype. Um, <laughs> but but we also learned something else is that we did had a huge amount of meetings and hanging around that were absolutely pointless and a, and a complete waste <laughs> of time. Um, the other thing I and the other thing I found out is that. Um, conference calls with people on Zoom or Skype turned people into more human people because mm-hmm. once you have a woman on the other side who is trying to explain uh, her marketing plan to to approach uh, the marketing of certain products and you hear three kids screaming in the background, you feel for that woman. It's like, how are you able to do such fantastic work while being at home with three kids that are willing to kill each other every day because they can't go to school, they can't go to a park, they just have to stay inside. And um, Or a guy who cannot walk so great, uh, and his dog is like it's like tearing up the couch behind him while he's on a Zoom call. He's like, hey, Johnny, Johnny, cut that out. Johnny, Johnny. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, shit, I'll be right back. And then, you, you know, you, so people got, because of this, people became way more empathetic to each other. Um, the other thing mm-hmm. I noticed is that people don't interrupt each other that much. If you go into a meeting room with 10 people, Two are very loud and very dominant. Then there's a few that only say when things are being asked and the other five just sit there and make notes. On a Zoom call, everybody gets their turn. People actually listen better to each other and the rules of engagement of a good conversation are better obliged in a Zoom call than in uh, a room filled with people. So there's a lot of things we learned. So positive. Are, Are there any pros to what happened here we hear a lot of the cons we need to get back into the room the energy that's yeah we not we for would me love to have that but there's there's no pros to saving time other than obviously the meeting thing but is there anything that you're able to utilize now that because i mean we've seen this technology in just a year go from nobody knew what a zoom was to now my mom's like well why aren't we zooming on this okay and, i mean but, uh, let me let me give, people are using that let stuff. me give you a few simple examples that Everybody who plays an instrument knows. Um, when you're playing in a band, like whether it's an orchestral band or it's like a brass band or a real band, you're not always on the top of your game. And sometimes you're not feeling it and you're just like hanging out there on stage and you're just like hanging back. You're playing wrong because there's a few others that are carrying the torch that night. When people have to record at home, the only thing they're listening to is themselves. So they mm. have to like, shit. And it's like, again, again. <laughs> and then so they push themselves to really high performance. So now when I get a recording back from 20 violins, I'm looking at star violinist solo performances one by one by one by one. Whereas if you record a string section, a few are excellent and the rest are just kind of hanging in there because they had a fight with their kids in the morning or their, their car was broken <laughs> into and they're not super focused. It's human. It's absolutely 100% human. And so there's a benefit to this. Other than that, um, I find myself to be way more productive working from home without distraction of people around me or the office between brackets. Uh, there's way less... Um, 
senseless hanging around and and getting drawn into conversations that you don't want to be part of. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying that everything in a week's work need to only be geared towards productivity and efficiency and how can we do things faster so there's more time to do more work. I think for me, it's like with a shorter working day, I get more accomplished and I have way more time at night to, you know, enjoy sit outside in the yard with my dog and a glass of wine. It's like, oh, what a great day. When I work in a studio, so much time gets unnecessarily lost. And then I have to work till one o'clock and two o'clock at night to get the work done. So it, it's it's actually more efficient, more productive, and at the same time, way more time to do other things. I, I, I'm Skyping with my best friends in Holland every day since the pandemic began for two hours. We're on a Skype call together. It starts at noon, LA time, every day. And we're on there for two hours discussing all kinds of random stuff. This was impossible a year and a half ago. I would say, I have no time. No, you do have time, but you lose so much time uh, doing other things that are not important. So, Like driving places. And, but for, instance, <laughs> yeah. for instance, I mean, executives are very happy because they can do up to 10 meetings that are like 50 minutes uh, or 20 minutes long on Zoom, very focused, go through everything. I mean, as an executive, Robert, you know, in LA, you could maybe do three meetings in a day and your day is gone. Two. Or if two. Predict, if they, one in Santa Monica and one in Burbank, you know, that was That's like, it. You, you had the morning meeting oh, yeah. and you had the afternoon meeting and that was it. And here, you're literally, the only stress is, oh, where's the Zoom link? I can't find that email. <laughs> that's, that's like the extent of your pressure on the meeting and then you get on and it is very focused we know you have a hard out so um i just really quick before we go uh army of the dead is is it still may 14th um i'm actually not sure um i thought it was end of may but maybe it is uh but let's just check it let's not guess um uh, so uh, any anything you can tell us about it what is really interesting about that movie is that um it's super far from being um, a typical zombie movie, but I'm not going to say anything more than uh, just that because I don't want to spoil it. Um, and musically, it's interesting too because I'm basically juxtaposing whatever you see in screen with my music by taking a completely uh, different approach to things. So um, the music for this film is actually very small and very emotional most of the time mm. well in fact what you're seeing on screen is quite the opposite the trailer is amazing cool. that trailer is so yeah, cool i can't wait for a it. real surprise too well we want to thank tom for joining the show uh be sure to subscribe and check out studio time and uh tom's social media is one of the best in the film music community as well so follow him on instagram and twitter a reminder to our listeners you can follow us there's a number of ways twitter at score the podcast instagram at score movie so, uh, facebook score a film music documentary and don't forget to subscribe on patreon for more score just search more score on your desktop or mobile app uh, a lot more interviews, and uh, it's year-round, so we're never in an off-season. Tom, thanks so much for joining the show today. Thank you, guys. I want to thank you also for your inspiration. It really is your inspiration. Your, your attitude's inspiring. It's just it reminds me of looking at things from a positive point of view. I also hope your back is better. 
Yeah, feel better. It healed Ooh. itself during this conversation. See, that's it. How, how was that? Yeah. yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, score the podcast <laughs> we'll take the credit has for that. therapeutic qualities that we'd like to share. If you're a composer and you're having some trouble, physical, emotional, spiritual, come on the show. You'll feel <laughs> Listen better. to two episodes a day and call us next week. Hey, SCORE listeners, we are so grateful for the support of Spitfire Audio. They collaborate with people like Hans Zimmer and the Bernard Herrmann Estate to build sample libraries that elevate your music. You're about to hear a musical demo of what that sounds like. As an exclusive to our SCORE listeners, Spitfire Audio is offering 25% off your first order. That's good for over 50 of their libraries. And you just have to use the promo code SCORE2021. Again, 25% off your first order using that promo code SCORE2021. It's an exclusive to you, our SCORE the Podcast listeners. Just go to spitfireaudio.com and enter the promo code in so they know we sent you. Now we're going to play you a sample cue from the Abbey Road 1 Orchestral Foundations package so you can hear some of the different sounds that that package offers. Check it out.
Once again, you can save 25% off your first Spitfire order with the promo code SCORE2021. Robert, what?